he likened, and I think this is a great analogy, he likens uh, drug addicts and people who are mentally ill, who are living in tents to people who have dementia. And he says, look, their brains have been hijacked by mental illness and drugs and alcohol. And if, if that were your grandmother and she had dementia, no, no one would ever stand for her living in her own filth in a tent. Spit that shit out, man! That's on flip script. That's like the new uh, um, gentrification line, right? Yeah, as, Ly- as Lionel will tell you, that is, I mean, that's where he grew up. Okay. So he will, yeah. And so all of the displaced people are moving, mostly people of color are moving to East County, like near Gresham. That's mm-hmm. generally where um, diversity now resides in Multnomah County. Uh-huh. So it's like David Douglas School District. Right. Yeah. Right. You and know what I, my neighbor said this morning, his, his name's, uh, well, let's call him my neighbor. He's, he's a <laughs> friend of my daughter's and, uh, he comes over every morning, all the middle schoolers come over to my house to hang out before they get on the bus. Oh, that's cool. And he had a new haircut he had a pretty cool new fro. And I was like, Hey dude, cool new haircut. And he's like, yeah, I went to where the black people live to get it. Sure. And well, I was like, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're black and you live here. He's like, yeah, well, I went to where the black people live. Right. Because mm-hmm. because the barbers know how to handle that mm-hmm. hair. Mm-hmm. Well, of course. But like he didn't see himself as he just saw that as a whole separate entity area. And he's, oh, he's sure. mixed race, right? Yeah. Caucasian mother, African-American father. But he he himself saw it as a separate entity, mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty interesting. The, in terms of area. Yeah, just well, yeah. and I, I, I just said to him, I was like, "You, you live here. You, you live the black here in this people area. Live here. He's like, "No, but where, where the black people live?" Like that's more, another more interesting people, economic right? issue because right. yeah. the black, all of my black clients, all the all of my black friends who are all professionals live on the west side of Portland. Oh, really? Yeah, um, like deep. Portland, like close to Beaverton, unincorporated Washington, Clackamas County. And Beaverton's Mm -hmm. fair, like racially diverse in terms of compared to many other areas in Portland. Yeah. I mean, that's where I like to go for, I mean, you can go really far east for Korean barbecue and stuff, but also Beaverton. And and I wonder if a lot of that's Nike (laughs) too. Oh yeah. And Hillsboro. Right. I mean, East Indian, big East Indian populations. And I mean, it's frankly... In a lot of ways, it's a lot more diverse over there. When I take my kids to ice skating in Beaverton or something, I'm yeah. like, it's suddenly diverse. I'm like, this yeah. is amazing. Cost, Costco, I popped into Costco over there and it feels much, much different yeah. than like the uh, Clackamas. Or so Gladstone, much more interesting. Costco. Yeah. But, you know, I've also like even I've only been here five years. Um, but I feel like even in just this street alone, I've seen a change like the migration of people is easier than it's ever been. Yeah. It's 2022. I mean, you know, uh, no place is going to stay static. And I think it's, it's more racially diverse in the city than it was 15 years ago, probably. And it's only going to keep going in that direction. I hope so. Yeah, let's hope so. We got a long way to go, right? I think we have a long way to go. And as a professional, I mean, at least in the, I worked at a big firm for a while and what we noticed was we would intentionally bring in people of color. We wanted to really try to, we had 
mean, we didn't call it this back then, but it was really a DEI commute committee that we had that was part of the firm diversity, equity, inclusion. Mm-hmm. It's really what it was. Uh, we didn't know, have the terminology back then, but the idea was let's pick the groups that are most underrepresented, particularly in Portland, because we have these companies that are rightly in, and I think morally correct in caring more and more about who, what your team looks like and who, what do you have diversity as part of your legal team? And so we really tried to bring on, I mean, our number one, number one area that we wanted to target diversity wise was not like even it wasn't the poor. It wasn't, um, it was, it was really just any black people. We just wanted Mm -hmm. any black people at all. And, and we would incentivize, try to incentivize people, pay your, we'll pay your moving expenses. We'll, um, bring you onto a summer internship, um, very well paid and with lots of perks and benefits and hope that we woo you enough to come over here. And sometimes they would, but they would inevitably go in house to, um, a job that required fewer hours and was probably better paid and, and was probably more prestigious somewhere like Nike or Intel or something like that. Um, because they were also sought after there. So they were just stealing this talent that we were were bringing in, (laughs) but also a lot of them just didn't, they hated it. I mean, they, they would say, they would say, nobody else looks like me here. Yeah. It's harder. Like I hate this. Right. You don't, where is your community? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where do you get your community? Yeah. I mean, they, they just didn't find a community and my, all of my, um, at one point I had, this is very bizarre for Portland, but at one point in the recent future, I had a client roster that was all black and to a person, every single one of them was, well, one of them has left, has moved, but every single one of them, um, would move if they could. I mean, they were either here for a spouse's job or they were here for like their job or they were trying, trying it out for one reason or another. They, they were compelled to be here. And if they hadn't already moved, they were looking to move because they, they, they were from more diverse, more interesting places like New York city where they, there were other people who looked like them and there Mm -hmm. was a culture that they felt represented in. And then they got to Portland and I, I think, I mean, they described it as like, I feel like an oddity. Right. Sure. Like people are treating me like a curiosity. Let's uh, let the listeners wonder no more and get some info on who you are and your line of work. Um, My name is Kristen Olson. I'm a trial lawyer. I do personal injury and corporate litigation for both businesses and companies. It's all civil trial work. And I also have a podcast called Rational in Portland. And I go by on the show, I go by the name Karen, which is sort of a dig at myself as a middle-aged white lady in the city of Portland. (laughs) And um, it's so interesting that you chose to name it Rational in Portland. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, what, what are you trying to say with that? Are you trying to say people here are irrational? I have Never. a, I have a very smart group of girlfriends and one in particular that I'm very close to a, a colleague of mine. She's a fabulous employment lawyer. And she, she said, I feel like you're kind of, your show is like canary in the coal mine kind of stuff. Like I've, it's sort of like exposing, um, I think she may have used what's irrational about the city. And I said, well, what if, what if it was just 
what if we try to conceptualize the idea that the show is about rationality and moderation and, and common sense. And then the, it, we were on the phone with another friend of mine who's a public defender and the three of us just sort of said rational in Portland. And that's how we came up with it. Right. It's so funny how that, I don't think it would like rational in Cleveland. You'd be like, okay, buddy. <laughs> no, I, I think rational anywhere would, would resonate because nobody's rational anymore. Now, well, that's anywhere, true. Anywhere. And these, and these, these days, that's I mean, true. And some of these crazy left-wing stuff you see in Portland and, uh, you know, you see crazy right wing stuff other places. Yeah. yeah I mean, Marjorie Taylor yeah. Green. That? That's a great example of that right wing <clears throat> lunacy. I mean, yeah. she's yeah. She, key, she's now apologized for it, but she was, you know, an unabashed QAnon supporter. I mean, oh right. General Flynn, like yeah. what happened to that I know. guy? I mean, I think he's, my opinion is he's, he's a mental illness or something. I mean, this his his a belief in what amounts to sharp analysis as being conspiracy theories on the level of Alex Jones is just shocking. Yeah, it is shocking, but it's, I think all of that also speaks to the power of, of, uh, social media and the, the way we get information now and then we can silo away and, and by siloing away, we can go deeper and deeper and deeper. Probably what can happen in some communities in a place like Portland in terms of you're only surrounded by people that think just like you and you, you all grab each other's hand and skip further and further down that path, mm-hmm. sometimes not even noticing how far you've gone down the path because nobody's there to say, hey, guys, nobody you respect, right, is there to say, hey, guys, is this are we going the right way? Have we checked ourselves? No, you know nobody does that anywhere, right? Just, I think some the, people, except do. our both two podcasts, we, that's the only place I, I've noticed that it happened. But you know, I think there's something really powerful about narrative, and I know that in some of your episodes, you've highlighted people like you know one of your recent episodes was a third generation Oregonian um, Portlander, I think she was, who um, is socially liberal, but voted for Donald Trump twice. And, you know, you sought to have a good faith conversation with her and to, to highlight rationality perhaps instead of divisiveness. And I think that loops back into like what we were talking about at the top of this podcast in terms of narrative is really powerful. And how do we change a narrative for a place like Portland whose narrative the last couple of years is like, look, this place is crazy. Um, how do we, how do we embrace the changes that need to happen? And that I think a lot of people in good faith are trying to fight for while at the same time, um, lifting up a place as a place where good people should want to come and live, not as a shit show or a place where, where black people should want to come and live. Cause it's beautiful and there's the mountains and there's the ocean and there's good food. And so I've been trying to noodle on this myself personally. How do you put out a narrative that says, Hey, we want you here because we think you'll make a place better. And that's what we're fighting for to make a place better. In many different ways. Um, how do you do that without pandering? How do you do that without uh, um, slipping into, you know, ways of communicating that might sound not genuine? I, I think it's just a slow process. I, mean, I think we're fundamentally irrational animals. And that's always good. That, that situation is always going to be there. So whenever emotions and 
reason collide, emotions prevail. Mm-hmm. That's just who we are. So, and, and then social media has just exacerbated that in new levels. So we just have to sort of have conversations like this. And it's just going to be like, you know, one conversation, then the next conversation. It's just going to have to be a long process, unfortunately. Right. That's such a hard question. I don't think Portland's ad campaign did a very good job their last attempt. What was their last attempt? Oh, I don't I don't remember the specifics, but they kind of made themselves look like the scorned boyfriend. It was kind of like, eh, we know we messed up, but you want to give it another try? <laughs> is, it, is it a scorned boyfriend, boyfriend or girlfriend? It could be either. Uh, well, yeah. we'll call it the boyfriend. Don't be so binary, I mean, that was, that was pretty much their ad campaign to say, we, we, we're, we're yeah. still cool, we think. Well, would, you, would you like to come check us out? We're still cool, we think. <laughs> So, <laughs> you're really looking any, for that affirmation. <laughs> That's so funny. Anytime you're in a position where you have to reach out to others to say, please join our group or we'd like you to no, be part of our sure. organization, you're in a really crappy position. You fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree and with I that. Don't, I don't know if Portland's going to have that drive or draw until they figure out who they are first. Right. That's interesting, right? Is figure but, out who you are. And, they, and they, we might be going through that process. Kristen, um, who are we? <laughs> well, I, I thought Nancy Rommelman, who's a journalist who was sort of driven out of Portland and now lives in New York City, I, I think she described it really well when she said Portland is hermetic. It's it's this bizarre little sealed off place. It's not, she says, and I agree with her, that it's not an international city in the way that, that Seattle is, in the way that San Francisco is. And I think that's part of the problem. It's hive. It's a bizarre hive mind echo chamber. She sounds hermetophobic mm. to me. I'm just. Saying, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. But. but is can it remain that way though, Kristen? Because like we were just talking about, uh, your neighbor on one side of you is from California. Your neighbor on the other side of you is from you know somewhere else. The person every, sitting every, next to her on the right is from it, the California. The person sitting next to you now is from California. The person sitting next to you on the left is from California. Like people from all over the place, not just California, but yes. Um, <laughs> other a-hole are, states are, like New York. Have been moving here and continue to move here. <clears throat> so can Portland, even if some people wanted it to, can it stay hermetic? Because it's gone from many, maybe, uh, you know, two generations ago, um, a, a different city than it is in this modern era. And part of that is informed by migration. That's not going to stop. So there, there might be this overarching uh, DNA of, of a hermetic city. But at some point, is it going to outgrow that? Much to the concern of some people, I'm sure. And to the, you know. Uh, celebration of others, uh, it's still a growing city. Well, I I mean, I hope so, but I think all the, for one thing, all the people that you mentioned are white, including, no offense, the person sitting to the right of me. Um, What? I, you know. Why would I be offended by that? Well, it's a a joke. (laughs) In Portland, you might be. I don't know. It's very uncool. It's very, it's not, um, Super cool, which is why I kind of make fun of myself as, as by using the name Karen on the show. But uh, I, th- I think, I mean, I wish it was a more diverse group moving here. It seems to be a group of people who can, most of whom, the ones I know, the neighbors I have, they all, they're all Zoomers, as we would call them. They all uh-huh. work from home. They're not bringing business with them. 
They're mm-hmm. not bringing a company here. They, they work for Airbnb or LinkedIn, or they have a marijuana farm or they, I mean, they're not bringing, and, and the farm is in California, you know, they're not bringing companies here. We're not, we will never be Seattle unless we become more business or, or San Francisco, unless we become more business friendly. But do we, do is we have to be, goal, do we have to be either of those cities? Can we just be know, a, I, a better version of Portland? I think it's tough to be an international city and, and not have big businesses and big companies that attract sure. a lot of different people from yeah. around the country and well, different looking people. Well, and p- the way people are moving now in terms of moving their business, they're not moving from California or Washington to Oregon. They're moving from California to Texas or Florida. That's right. Uh, and so there's deeper, there's deeper, um, reasons why that's happening, you know, other than it's pretty or I like the weather or it's diverse, it's business friendly, um, policy as well. Well, and the sophisticated people who have moved here from places like the Bay area that I've talked to, like my neighbors and people that I work with all express discontent with the idea that, you know, we don't have a stadium. Taylor Swift doesn't come here. We don't have an NFL team. We don't have a major league baseball team. We don't, our schools are garbage. We, 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 we seem like a progressive place that would invest in education. Why do we, why can't we graduate people from high school? Like what's wrong with us? Well, I mean, California is a great example of that. It's it, they spend the most per capita and students. It's a generally speaking, a progressive state with its own GDP larger than most countries in the world. And they have a horrible school system. Well, and what's so funny is they're coming from California where that's happening and they expect it to be better here, but it's just, it's not. And I think, I, I, and they express surprise. I, they express surprise at the idea that they can't take a direct flight really anywhere. <laughs> aren't, aren't there direct, direct flights to New York and London? There are. Just, not, not, just many. not as many. Not There's many. not as many. If you're coming there from San Francisco. Very few. Well, it's a small city. I mean, also, like, I've, to me, that there's a, there's a, a plus and a minus to that, right? Because to me, I've spent the last two decades living in New York and L.A. And... Great places for different reasons, but the grind of that and the times where you leave your house and fundamentally question your life choices because you're so fucking stuck in traffic or the subway's not coming. <laughs> it, again, great places, but there is a reality to living in those places, too, that I've never questioned why I left the house when I leave the house. Here. Well, and is, it, and is it worth having to take one connecting flight? To have the right. benefit of not not having that grind, like you, you, there's there's less flights to all those places from Austin too. You know, it's a really cool fucking city. Well, a lot of people go to Austin and have the same feeling that they that those who go come to Portland feel. I have a friend who had moved his whole business to Austin as a tech business. He wrote code for hedge funds, and he's he's there. He's just like you know, I you know, I, I don't like it. I'm I'm moving back. Really, it's it's what didn't he like? Well, he didn't like. It's just some of the things we've been talking about. It's not a world-class right. city. It's a cool little liberal enclave in the middle of Texas, it, but yeah. it's not San Francisco. Right. It's not Seattle. It's not LA. It's not New York. It's not Chicago. Well, it's, and you just hit it there. I don't think Portland should ever be compared to the larger cities because it's not. Well, and at least it, in some it, regards, maybe. It, well, we don't have a major opera. We don't have a baseball team. We don't, right. We're not legislatively big enough. Urban design is atrocious. 
I think comparing Portland to a city like Austin would be a kinder way to yeah, look yeah, at the yeah. city. And I, I think, think if so Portland too. embraced its smallness too, that would be a better approach. I think it should because that accessibility, that human scale, even the way the city was designed, right, in terms of accessibility, walkability, the, the inner parts of the city, the mm-hmm. downtown areas, um, I think that that really is a strength of the place. It's one of the things that attracted me in terms of just being ready for a more hu- something that felt more human scale. Um, and I gave something up definitely to come here, but I, but I, but I gained as well. And um, I, I, but I get the sense from you and you're born and raised here. I get the sense from you that, that in some ways you're kind of over it. No, I'm I'm definitely not I'm not over Portland. I'm concerned about it. Right. In what way? Tell us more. Well, I think it I think there's an interest in in being a bigger city. We for one thing, Multnomah County, this is a little known fact. Multnomah County, which is where Portland resides, has the highest income tax of anywhere in the country. Anywhere. Really? Really. Hmm. And it came about because of a most recently because of a couple ballot measures. One is the homeless tax and one was the a preschool tax. And um, in fact, the Oregonian and, and when the Oregonian tells you not to vote on a tax, you know, there's something. <laughs> yeah, you know there's something big behind it. Uh, the, the Oregonian, it may have come out against the preschool tax, but it certainly came out against the homeless tax. And they just said, look, this is a going to be an absolute disaster. There's no metrics in place for accounting of these funds. I think when all is, is was said and done, the the estimated amount that they were raising via that tax was in the billions with a B. And the story, which is a great local show on KGW, just did a piece on this with the People for Portland guys, one of whom drafted that helped draft that homeless measure and said, look, the idea behind this homelessness tax was to get these people out of tents and off of streets. And there's been, it's created a homeless industrial complex, most of millions of which are being funneled into bureaucracies. And we're not, in fact, the people in tents are exploding. And so he was talking on the story on KGW about how they're coming up with a ballot measure to, create metrics to say that a certain amount of this tax has the revenue of this tax has to go to getting roofs over people's heads. Well, is that, and that's, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because coming from San Francisco and I lived right downtown, actually one of them, one of the biggest homeless encampments in San Francisco is, you know, um, in the Tenderloin. No, that's, I mean that the whole Tenderloin, the whole Tenderloin is a freaking homeless encampment. It's like escape from New York, but but I lived in South of market and so fifth and Harrison, there's a, the 101 overpass there, and it's just a massive, sprawling uh, homeless camp. But you know, having lived in San Francisco for 20 years, I've seen them throw so much money. And I was talking to somebody. Uh, my, my, I've got a cousin who's a, a, a Democratic socialist, and uh, and I, I, I was, he was commenting on social media about it, and, I, and he's like, "Yeah, if only all the billionaires in Silicon Valley just paid their taxes." I'm like, "Dude, money is not a problem in San Francisco." Probably outside of maybe New York, I can't think of any other city that has more money than San Francisco or the Bay Area. And they throw tons of money at it. So it's not so much, hey, we need to, when I hear tax for homeless in San Francisco, I think, 
what are you going to do with it? What are you going to just um, build more navigation centers all in the Tenderloin and in South of Market? Um, are you going to spread them out? Are you because because they there there are uh, empty beds and empty houses that are meant for the homeless there that they they won't go to because they can't do drugs in there and they They're can't here too. drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they, they would set up the encampment, massive encampments right next to big homeless centers. They would go get their food at mealtime and then come back out to their tents where they can shoot up. And, and I'm, I'm saying they in a, in a broad sense. Obviously, they're not all addicts, but I think a large part of the homeless problem is mental illness and then that self-medication with, with drugs. They're, they're addicted out there. So many of them. Well, you know, the Oregonian just did a piece. Uh, we've decriminalized drugs in Portland or in Oregon, the whole entire state. But I, I'm thinking Portland just because that's where you, you know, it's where you're going to see it the most. Maybe a fair amount, uh, you'll probably see a fair amount of meth in places like Medford, but in Portland, you see the, the, the idea that we've criminalized drugs is loud and proud. And the Oregonian just did a piece that said, you know, that decriminalization measure was supposed to fund treatment. Um, and there were a couple issues with that. The first issue was the governor, governor Brown took that treatment money right after that passed and reappropriated it. And then by the time it was able to be allocated to treatment, nobody was using the treatment services. In fact, the Oregonian looked at the data and they said that Mm. 1% of people who were like, I guess the idea is you give them a little fine or a little ticket and you tell them to show up in court. That's part of our decriminalization measure. Now drug courts have basically gone away drug courts were a way that we com- helped compel people into treatment. It, they were regardless of whether you believe that that ultimately works or not to the extent that there were people that were clean for a period of time. A lot of the times that was because they were, they went through drug court and they were mandated into rehab. And now we don't have that with the idea the or, way the Oregonian explained it is it's a ticket. You have to show up in court. Half of them don't show, which makes sense. I mean, a lot of them are probably addicts. They don't, that's not really on their agenda, showing up in court for some petty fine. That's probably, and, and the, I, the fact is in Portland, it's not really, you're not really going to be pursued anyway. So I don't think anybody takes any of this very seriously, but half of them are showing up. And then with this ticket, there's a line, there's a hotline where you can call for treatment. And apparently some of this, tax, um, there's, they were raising revenue to fund treatment and, um, and through this decriminalization measure, the idea was, look, let's get, let's treat addiction as the disease that it is, which is noble and makes a lot of sense to me, but nobody's using this, this treatment portion of the bill. So, so can we have a hard yeah. conversation about requiring that you being, I mean, having people eat with proper oversight, come together and say, hey, this there's a person who's clearly suffering and mentally ill, dying in a puddle of their own urine in a tent. You know, um, can we take them to treatment and force them to stay there for a period of time? Then you're triggering an ACLU legal case. Well, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Can, can we, you know, can we have that conversation? I mean, and I think we should. And, and, and if, if uh, litigation needs to spring forth from that, you know, again, with proper oversight, I'm not talking about stormtroopers walking around, scooping people up off the street. I'm talking about compassionate 
advocates and, and professionals who know how to deal with this situation and are, are fluent with uh, the addiction problem, understand it, and saying, okay, this person is clearly, you know, a danger to themselves. I mean, you can put somebody in confinement if they're a danger to themselves. There's, I don't know that what the ACLU's uh, legal leg to stand on would be uh, if, if, if confining people who are suicidal um, is legal. So maybe it, maybe it is illegal and we need to have that go through the courts. But I got I just, you know, with all the things I've seen come down on this issue, that's the only one that just sort of sticks with me as, you know, some of those people are going to come back out and be drug addicts again, but there's a certain percentage of those people are going to, that, that treatment is going to stick and they might be able to turn their lives around right. and, and it, not be out on the street dying. It makes intellectual sense, but I, I'm not familiar with it. Kristen, are you familiar with the history of ACLU? Um, presence in this realm and, and how that's affected our ability to handle the homelessness crisis? Well, I, Michael Schellenberger, who's running for office in California, he wrote a book called San Francisco about this, basically exactly what you were talking about in this humanitarian crisis in places he focused on San Francisco but it's really in places like San, you know, he discusses the San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, where you really see this humanitarian crisis of people just, like you said, laying in their own filth and tents on the street. It's like something out of South Sudan. It's bizarre to see in a first world country. And he says that the ACLU will fight it tooth and nail. They do fight it. And that he he lays out in his book his interviews with them, he has spoken to them and their argument is he likened, and I think this is a great analogy. He likens uh, drug addicts and people who are mentally ill, who are living in tents to people who have dementia. And he says, look, their brains have been hijacked by mental illness and drugs and alcohol. And if, if that were your grandmother and she had dementia no, no one would ever stand for her living in her own filth in a tent. So what, what exactly is the difference? And this woman from the ACLU, her argument was dementia is not treatable. And he, he said his mind was blown and my mind was blown as he was saying that because what's so aggravating is addiction and mental illness are treatable. So she was saying <laughs> that dementia is not treatable. Therefore it's not an apt comparison. Yeah. But Blind to blind to the unsaid portion of that, which is that these other things are treatable and therefore. Well, it's their So you're ero the argument is you're eroding their civil liberties. Right. And that people with dementia are literally incapable of making a choice, whereas people who are mentally ill and addicted could at any moment make a choice. Has that gone through any judicial wow. process? I'm sorry, Britt. Has that gone through any judicial process? It. No one has had. As far as I know, and according to Schellenberger, no, nobody has seemed to have the fortitude or the money or the interest in seeing that through. And there's very, in places where this is really, the, the tents are really exploding and this humanitarian crisis is really exploding, like Portland, Seattle, and San Francisco, there's, his argument is, and I think that's right as I look around Maybe it'll change. I mean, maybe we will elect some people to Portland City Council, to Multnomah county commissioners that, that are interested in getting people out of tents. But his argument is there's really no political will to do that. Mm. 
Every time I hear this and read about it, it all comes back, at least it seems to me, to the same incredibly complex issue is that <clears throat> all of these people with addiction or mental illness get stuck being shuffled among different social and government and legal organizations. They're either sent to prison or they're sent to the hospital or they're in a halfway house or they're, they're at some social services building. And each of those organizations has a different metric and different policy for letting them go. Do they have the mental acuity to take care of themselves? Are they no longer a threat to themselves or to society? And then they release them back out into the streets, into the public. Well, the hospital has one metric and the legal system has another metric and social services has another metric. And they metric. don't talk to each other. Probably. And there's, there's no clear ties talking to one another, which is why you have the issue that you had two months ago. Um, guy who had been homeless and in and out of the streets and in and out of drugs for 10 years. He had been released from um, a social services organization and he went to the subway and he pushed a woman in front of the train. And the family is, is unapologetically furious at the social system for not keeping a stronger hold on him. Mm -hmm. But when, when do you take away somebody's autonomy and say, we're keeping you in treatment or we're locking you up for a while when, when they're I, danger to themselves or others. And, but who decides how do you define that? Right? That? And you, how do you define a pan, that? It's a panel so of, like, it can unbelievably be it complex. Can, we already do define it. If somebody's suicidal, mm -hmm. it's, it's definable. That's not a, that's not a hard problem for me. Have, have proper oversight, you know, not, not have the police go out there and decide it. Yeah. If you're talking about incarcerating somebody or not incarcerate, I mean, uh, confining somebody against their will um, because they're a danger to themselves or others. I don't think that's a hard metric for maybe even you have to have two or three, you know, board certified psychologists sign off on it. There's a DSM five. Um, you can do it. Just, I think what Kristen is saying is the, is the big sort of sine qua non here, which is um, there's no political will to do it. Right. But I mean, we can find people against their will all the time for things other than breaking the law. And we could do, we could do it if there was political will. And, and Kristen, you, we've talked about your professional background. You have a personal background that, that really dovetails with this topic. And as much as you're comfortable doing it, would you share that with us? Sure. Uh, my dad always suffered from mental illness from my earliest memories, pretty severe, bipolar, wild swings of mania and depression. And so I, there was that piece, the mental illness piece. So I have some, I have a fair amount of experience with that just by living with him. And my mother had two master's degrees, one of which was in counseling and she really focused on kids, but she certainly had that academic piece, but it's, it's kind of like the cobbler's kids have no shoes scenario where mm. I, I think, and she died when I was young. So I think he kind of like, relied I think we all relied on her to sort of manage him no I know we did we do, we for sure did we including him we all just really relied on her to manage him and and she was happy to do that which is super dysfunctional uh, and he was really never interested in really getting treatment and he was never interested in following through with medication and things like that and if you I, th this is common. I mean, I, I heard an interview with with Kanye West who says he's bipolar and you know, he says that the medication like blunts his creativity. It makes him feel 
like he's not himself. I think that's typical. I mean, I think for my dad, it was fun to be manic. You know, it was fun. It was racy and exciting and it's not fun to be on pills and it's not, I mean, I've, I'm a lifelong therapy addict and, um, it's, I, I do it because of what I grew up with. I go every week, but it's not fun. (laughs) It's really hard. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. And so I don't blame him for not getting help. I think his brain really was hijacked by mental illness. And I think his illness was telling him like, it's not fun to be blunted by medication and it's painful to have to sit with a, a, not, not only a psychiatrist who manages your meds, you know, you've got all these appointments, you got to deal with your psych who manages your meds, but you also have to meet with a, a therapist or a psychologist or something like that. Cause usually psych psychiatrists only deal with medicine. Right. So then you have to, you got to carve out space to, to wrestle with all your demons and all the stuff that you certainly don't want to talk about, let alone like spend an hour working out with a professional. I, I mean, I think that's really tough. So that I had that going on. And then my sister, when she was in junior high school, was diagnosed with spinal meningitis and spent a month in Seattle Children's Hospital and almost died. And and this was in the late 80s, early 90s, when pain became a vital sign. And they call it the fifth vital sign now, right? Like there's a Hulu show about this Um about the opioid epidemic and the Sacklers and it's a great show. Um, dope sick. And it, it kind of chronicles what I watched her go through. None of us knew what was going on at the time, but you know, she was in a lot of pain. She had a lot of headaches. She had, she had a lot of physical pain. And the solution to that with even little kids was to pump them full of, opioids like Oxycontin, morphine, Dilaudid even, which is like previously that was given to cancer patients in hospice. And so when she finally came out of of the hospital, not only had she missed significant periods of formative years, like junior high is hell. You could not pay me enough to repeat it, (laughs) but it, I think it was necessary. It was like boot camp or something for life. And (laughs) And it was really necessary to go through adolescence in some kind of normal, horrific way. And she, she really never did that. And instead she, she came out with a pill addiction and, and they kept giving her pills until it was not okay to give pills anymore. And then suddenly the, everybody was onto the Sacklers and everybody was onto this opioid crisis. But by then the train had left the station. I mean, Appalachia was in a state of ruins, people across the country, were suffering from these pill addictions and their doctors were cutting them off because they knew that they would have the med- their medical licenses taken away. They would be sued. They, but there was no recourse for these people. There was, they, they didn't, these doctors weren't following through with them. They were just stopping, stop, right. They would just stop writing prescriptions. And that's what happened with her. And I remember sitting in a, when she was in high school, late high school, you know, just sitting in a doctor appointment with her and my mother and, and the doctor saying, you, you have a pill addiction And what you need is inpatient rehabilitation. And that was the first time that anybody had even suggested it. And just automatically she Mm. just said, absolutely not. And, and let's see. uh, I, I haven't talked to her in 20 some years. She's 
homeless uh, and has always been, I mean, since she was just a, 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 she wasn't herself obviously. And who knows, who knows who she was because she missed all those formative years. So I don't, I don't think we ever knew her. I don't think she ever knew has ever been able to know herself, but growing up, she, it was, you know, as she progressed in this pill addiction and later heroin addiction, it was, uh, and she was, she had no education really. I mean, she barely graduated high school, so there was no way to hustle up some money and she, my parents were enablers and she was, my dad was completely insane and she was t- taking their money. You know, she would take their ATM card and just like take all their money. And, um, and then they, they had had it at numerous times and they would always throw her out and, and she would always come back. But from the first time they threw her out, I mean, she, she'd just always been homeless, even though she would come back and they would let her come back. That wasn't her home. Like she was an adult and, mm-hmm the room had been repurposed and I think they were all hoping she would just get treatment and not come back uh, or, or just never come back. Um, I, I mean, I think there was a part of them, part of the family unit that just sort of felt like it would be so, it would be less painful if she never came back. Right. Which sounds well, but, but, horrific because mm-hmm. there's more peace, but then the it would end Yeah, yeah. for them. Anyway, wow. cycle would end. Yeah. So no. she's still homeless, you know, she's still on drugs. Um, my dad has since passed away, but did your dad keep, what did he, where did he go once your mom passed away? Where did, what? he was homeless. Okay. So he lost the house. He quit his job. Uh, he's, he, he, he was homeless and I got him appointments with the best he was up in South King County. I got it in Washington. I got him appointments with the best psychiatrists in the city of Seattle. Most of them, he didn't, I pulled very delicate personal strings to get those appointments. Um, most of them, he didn't show up to the one he showed up to. He was late and he never went back and he didn't follow any of their advice. Um, I tried to obtain some kind of like, process over him like a guardianship or a conservatorship and um the laws in the state of washington they're less libertarian than they are in oregon but it's still a very it's a relatively libertarian place where hey you know you're just because you're not taking your meds and you lost your house and you don't want to go to a psych appointment doesn't to the system does not recognize that is incapacitated Mm -hmm if you can't house yourself in the state of certainly in the state of Oregon, I mean, look around, if you can't house yourself, that seems like a pretty basic Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It seems like a pretty basic thing, but in the state of Oregon, that does not mean that you're incapable. I mean, for good or for bad, that's our system. So there was no way that I could force him to get treatment. I, told him over and over again that I was happy to pay for any kind of hospital stay he wanted to engage in. He didn't want to do any of that. Really what he wanted was for me to like house him for me to do what my mother did. What he wanted was for me to house him and just um, sort of care for him um, in a, not in a way that he needed. And or not in a way that I thought he needed and not that right. I, in a way that I knew, I knew it would not be beneficial. Did you ever to try? Me. Did you, you never, did you ever even try that? Well, by then I was in a different state and I was 
in law school and I had three jobs and I had absolutely, I mean, I had very little capacity to care right. for myself. No, I get it. Mm-hmm. When did he pass away? When, yeah, he passed away in 2008. On the street? No, he somehow, he had no, he couldn't explain this to me. But so what happened, what, the way I got back in touch with him was, um, well, I guess I should tie that up with a bow. The way I lost touch with him was I find he was calling me, he would call me and cry and talk about how my sister had taken all of his money again, or she was taking his social security or whatever. And I finally just said, um, I mean, you, you can only say she's an addict and you can't give her money or your ATM card or your pin number. I mean, you can only say that so many times you can't, she can't live with you. So I finally just said, um, if you are interested in getting help, I am happy to figure out a way to pay for that. I will take out loans. I will do whatever I need to do to get you what you need. But until you get that, you can't call me anymore Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and lay this on me because I, I'm have, I'm having trouble getting out of bed. Right. Well, you're, and you're trying to crawl out of the proverbial bucket. You know, you're, you're, you're the crab trying to make your way out. Well, and I just knew I wouldn't, I wouldn't like if those phone calls continued, I knew I wouldn't. I, and and my therapist was like, this has to stop. You, you, you're, you cannot pick up the phone anymore and your message needs to be clear and you need to set really clear boundaries about what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do. And it, I mean, it took of years, but I was finally able to do that. And then I just didn't hear from him again because that, that channel of communication wasn't open and he, he didn't want, he didn't want mental help. And so he, he knew that I was a dead end at that point. And so we didn't talk for years. And then when I was in private practice as a lawyer, I got a, he like found me. He he explained to me that he had, he had gone to a library and asked the librarian how he would like track down a lawyer. And she said, there's actually a directory. We can just go to the directory and we can find where she is and where he wrote me a letter and said, Hey, I'm, I'm living in Las Vegas. I'm living. He was a drafted in Vietnam. And he said, I'm living in a vet's home. Um, I haven't spoken to your sister in a long time. I, I like it here. I'm doing okay. They said I, I should probably have somebody on some paperwork. So I thought I would just reach out and see if this is your contact information. And I called him immediately, um, went out to flew out to see him immediately. Um, and he wasn't, he was either medicated or he had had a stroke, but he wasn't, he didn't make a lot of sense. He wasn't really tracking. He was, he talked like he had a mouthful of marbles. So it was kind of, and he's a terrible historian, but he was always a terrible historian. And so it was kind of hard to understand how he ended up there. But through his social worker, who was also way overly familiar with my sister, I was able to piece together that they had somehow, I think for pr- prostitution purposes, she was traveling to Las Vegas. He tra- just sort of traveled along with her. His, what else was he really going to do? Um, and she seemed to find a way to like bamboozle her way into money and shelters and not literal shelters, but some kind of like a motel or somebody's couch or whatever. And he was just sort of following along on that trail. I mean, addicts are incredibly motivating, motivated. It's just incre- It's just amazing. Like this, my sister has never held 
a real job in her entire life, but somehow has managed to pay for her addiction through, throughout her entire life. It just, just, it's amazing how she's able to generate money. So he was just sort of following along and apparently she, he had some event. I don't know exactly what it was, but she uh, brought him to the hospital and sort of dumped him there. And then he spent a couple nights and a social worker kind of fortunately in Nevada, just kind of like picked him up and got him housed in this realized, Oh, you're a veteran. There are actually resources for you that we can strings that we can pull to get you on track to having like a, a, a functional life. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think he ever actually got mental health treatment. I, to the extent he was on medication, I don't know that it was really for his mental health issues because he was so far gone by the time I was talking with him. It was his brain was kind of mush. But um, but it, he seemed he ended up having a stroke and dying over there. But he seemed happy. He at least seemed happy. He was living mm. with this group of guys. He was housed. He was fed. Yeah. He had a caseworker. I mean, that was my best case scenario for him. So in a lot of ways, it was just such a godsend that he was able to get into the state of Nevada and, and obtain some services and get on somebody's radar. Yeah. And is your sister still there? No, she's <clears throat> floating around somewhere North of Seattle. And is it still pills for her or is she graduated to shooting up or anything like that? Well, everything I hear is, you know, like fourth hand or something through estranged, various estranged family members that trickles down to like a cousin that I'm particularly close to, which is sort of like the only person the only family member that I am particularly close to at this point. And she sort of relays to me that it, it turned into heroin just because pills are too expensive. Yeah. You know, I, uh, and I mean, I don't think I've said this before on here, but uh, I, I had a, I, I just talking about how powerful this addiction is and how powerful these drugs are. Um, I had a bank robber who he was, a, he was an, he was an addict, terrible heroin addict. And uh, long story short, we, we had him, we arrested him. We had him in the, uh, you know, handcuffed to a hospital bed in at Highland hospital in Oakland. And he was laying there cause they had to, they had to fix all of his flesh eating bacteria before we could take him to jail. And, uh, and so he, the doctor was just, it was so, it made me nauseous listening to him wail with in pain. It was terrible. And then she left and my partner went out to make a call and I'm sitting there with him. And, uh, he says, Agent Gilveri. I said, I said, yeah. He said, don't ever, ever, ever do heroin. I'm like, well, <laughs> I hadn't planned on it, but why, why are you telling me this? And he just looked at me. He was 47 at the time. And he looked at me and he said, I tried it when I was 18 and I've never, ever stopped. So it was like 40 years of him on heroin. I think it would be cold of us to um, go on without acknowledging how heartbreaking it is to watch these individuals, especially if their family members fall into the depths of becoming mentally incapacitated, whether that's through an illness or a brain injury or a stroke or drugs and addiction, all of these people are somebody's son or daughter or mother. And um, for you, Kristen, and for me, watching a family member have a mental incapacity where they clearly, clearly need help. They cannot function day to day on their own. Maybe even the government has approved them getting help, but they still have to accept that help and maybe they won't. It's, um, it breaks your heart. It's heartbreaking, but to me, all the more reason to have processes and protocols in place to, you know, yes, to confine them and but, get them the treatment they need. But this is why it's complex. You know, I have two family members who, 
who need this. They need that help. Some of them have been approved for the help, but actually saying yes or taking the steps or calling the and waiting on the hold line forever to talk to somebody with social services to connect you to the right people. It's exhausting. It's something that they're not usually able to do on their own. And there's so there's so many people who are stuck on this addiction level or mental incapacitation level, but they're protected by family because they're not on the streets. Maybe they're in a middle class income or a higher income level. So they're not doing bad crimes and they're not ending up in prison. So there's a huge population of people at this level, but they're being supported by systems around them. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a sort of a separate problem from people dying on the streets in their in a puddle of their own excrement. Yes, but, yes. And that, those, I'm not talking about in confining somebody who's living in a middle class house and being taken care of by their family and won't take their drug. Um, I'm talking about people who are literally out on the street about to die. Of course, but my only point is that whether they're on the streets or whether they're in a home being enabled by somebody. It's, it exists. The problem exists. Who, yeah, the problem exists. Yeah. And who is the person that says, stop enabling them and, and you need help. And, yeah. and we have the right to put you in a home and give you that treatment or give you that help. Well, and I would just yeah. say that starting at the most severe uh, levels, which is the people in the street, that's going to pass muster like more quickly than, and pass my intellectual muster too in doing this or moral muster, ethical muster. Um, you know, I'd, I'd much more inclined to, with proper oversight, have someone pulled off the street who's clearly going to die soon and get them the help they need and force it rather than someone who's, you know, not on the street and not committing crimes and I think not menacing that, people. The humanity that you're referencing, Britt, is, is one of the big reasons I was hoping that Kristen would be willing to tell her story. And thanks for that. Um, because I know that and her public stances that she's increasingly taken, um, she's she's been um, attacked, or or you know the 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 blowback has been that well you know you're privileged, you're a privileged white woman, you're a lawyer, you live in a very nice part of town, you know um, it's easy to car- caricature someone like how would you know you're sitting here in judgment? Mm-hmm. And so I wanted that other side of her experience to be in the room as well, because I know that you have some pretty passionate um, uh, opinions about how the homelessness issue has been handled, how we could move forward. The, the lack of political will or, or cowardice shown by, by leadership. And so I, I think in, in hearing where you stand on those things, it's important to know this is someone who's, it, it would be hard to be more affected by this right. homelessness and drug addiction issue. You know, the only way she could be more affected is if she was the one that right. was out on the street. Clearly she's deeply involved. And Kristen, I have a question for you though, cause you're, you, you're very familiar with uh, Portland government. Do you think part of the problem here um, is um, with, when you talk about political will, um, is the, the the form of government this city uses with the city council? The, the Ted Wheeler is a city council member who's chief of police. That just blew my mind when I first found that out. I mean, I, I'm not saying he's he's not a competent police and that's commissioner mayor, or whatever for, they're calling for people who don't live here. That's Mayor Ted Wheeler. Yeah, he, his mayor position is actually just one of several city council members. Right. In reality, there's not a real true chief executive, I don't think. Can you, yeah, for people who don't live here, Chris, Kristen, can you give us just kind of a rundown of what that looks like? Sure. I mean, Portland has made 
I don't know about international, but certainly national news about its dysfunctional form of city government for years. We have, as you said, we have a mayor and then we have a system of city commissioners. They are not geographically represented. In other words, they don't come from geographical districts. They all just come from the city of Portland and uh, they, they don't represent any particular geographic district. So we've got um, the mayor and then we have all these commissioners and they all have different jobs, including the mayor. So, you know, I, she may, may or may not still be, but Joanne Hardesty was in charge of transportation and I know was also the fire commissioner. And so, and, and Ted Wheeler was the police commissioner and Joanne Hardesty, who's a Portland commissioner, wanted Ted Wheeler to, you know, in the the wake of George Floyd, wanted Ted Wheeler to step down so she could be the police commissioner. And then if you talk to uh, PP Portland Portland, uh, Police Bureau, or if you talk to the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office, they will tell you that their directive comes from the Multnomah County commissioners. If you're the sheriff, uh, and, and also to a big extent, Ted Wheeler, even if you're a county sheriff and Portland Police Bureau will tell you that they get their orders from Ted Wheeler because he's the police commissioner. So they all have these bizarre various jobs. And it really sort of hilariously and tragically came to a head at one point of, of just absolute dysfunction when in the wake of the George Floyd peaceful protests and riots, Joanne Hardesty accused the police of setting these fires, setting the city ablaze. God, and Uh, sorry, Ted Wheeler (laughs) said, "Well, Joanne, you're the fire commissioner. It sounds like you're going to have to open up an investigation into that." And well, everybody covered this. I mean, Willamette Week covered it. If you Google Joanne Hardesty fire commissioner fires Portland, you know Wheeler port. Portland Police Bureau, it'll pop up. It was, it was covered by all the weeklies. It was covered by the Oregonian. So she immediately retracts her allegation and says, never mind. I, I apologize. I don't really think that the police are setting these fires. And Mayor Wheeler says, well, you're still the fire commissioner. And because the allegation was made, you still have to open up an investigation. What? And so... That was, to me, in reading that, was sort of like the peak of our bizarre Jesus, they're <laughs> just having a family squabble. Yeah. In, the state of, in, in the state of Oregon. And, and I say the state of Oregon because Oregon, to the chagrin of everybody who lives outside of Portland, particularly east uh, in the state— will tell you and and they'll tell you this is why they want to secede that Oregon is a city state. There are so many people in the city of Portland as compared to the rest of the state that it Portland really drives everything and runs everything. And um, when you get down to like statewide measures, like the drug decriminalization measure, et cetera, it's really Portland that drives that. It's Portland that decides how Oregon's going to vote in any given presidential election, et cetera. So uh, bringing it back to Portland city government, there have been ballot measures to change our, our form of city government, to change our, the constitution city, like the city charter and, and change how it works. But 
I think people are alarmed. Gen- generally, if you're uninformed about how the city works, it's kind of alarming to I imagine a large structural change like that and it hasn't passed. I think now there's a lot more momentum, especially after we gained so much international attention from from our, I would call it dysfunction uh, in the wake of George Floyd and the, the way that the city was just absolutely unable to handle everything from the nightly riots to business vandalism to to the mayor's own condo being set fire. I, I think they, there is some consensus that it needs to be fixed. And in fact, Mingus Maps, who's a current Portland commissioner, thinks it should be fixed. There's there's also a, a commissioner candidate named um, he's he's actually Ukrainian. And, and he's a lawyer. He's a, I think he's a labor lawyer, but anyway, his name's Vadim and he is running, he is running against Joanne Hardesty for a commissioner seat. And he is on this, uh, it's like a com- commission study. They've put together a committee to study the idea of changing Portland's form of city government. And he's on that committee and in he's, absolutely interested in changing it. So we even have people who are interested in being on in the government and people like Mingus Maps who are part of the city government who unabashedly acknowledge that it's problematic. Do you and think that you we th- need a city manager and et cetera? I'm sorry. Do you think the heavy hitters in, in uh, Portland um, are, are against this or, I mean, like the, you talked about the homeless uh, or houseless industrial complex. I've noticed that in San Francisco too. They're very powerful, very powerful. Um, the, the complex? Yeah, the, 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 the industry of um, putatively caring for the homeless. Um, and I, I think they're well-intentioned, to be honest, but they, they do. They, it's their way or, or no way. And if you don't get on board with that, you're not going to get elected to any um, government position there. And I'm getting the sense that it's the same way here. So I'm wondering if Kristen could weigh in on that. And who are the heavy hitters here, the political heavy hitters? Well, Portland's a weird place because I heard we don't have, we, 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 we don't have that. Our heavy hitters are the teachers union. Uh, they're, they're everything from the teachers union to, you know, the CEO of Columbia sportswear to Jordan Schnitzer to the houseless industrial complex. Wow. So there are a lot of different voices that I think have a pretty powerful say. I mean, you know, we almost had a unabashedly affiliated Antifa member elected as mayor, Sarah Iannarone. And she was really his only, Wheeler's only opposition. She was his only challenger. And it was very close. So the idea that impecunious people in Portland don't have a political say is that's false. Um, There is a large grass, there are large, very large grassroots organizations full of people that engage in Bernie Sanders style fundraising where it's a dollar here or a dollar there. And because of things like public matching funds, effectively, there are some candidates who are able to nearly double some of what they're given as long as the donations are small enough. So if you give a, you know, a small enough donation, it can, it can equal, you know, know, a two figure donation could equal hundreds of dollars through public matching. So you can get, I'm in, that might be a great thing. I, I, I'm not 
opining on that, but it's just a fact. So it's, it's not, you don't have to be a schnitzer or a, uh, a, a, a C, the CEO of Columbia or a, a business economically powerful person in Portland to have any kind of say whatsoever. Um, you can be, you could, anybody can run for commissioner. I mean, I think people like Joanne Hardesty have showed us that. I think people like Chloe Udali, who was on the Portland city commission, who was like a little bookstore owner and, um, had a special needs son and, and was, very popular. They're, they're, they're still a very, very big contingent that's sad that she lost and, and she's not on the commission anymore. I think people like, uh, frankly, Sarah Iannarone's close loss is, is a great reflection of the way that Portland politics works and that it's really not just decided by big business enterprises. Now, the argument against that would be, and I know what they would say, they, the, um, grassroots people who have less money, they would say, well, Sarah lost. And so it does show that good old boys like Ted Wheeler with, with Ivy league pedigrees and Uber rich families are the ones controlling Oregon. But I think I, if you, if you look at what Ted Wheeler's done and sort of his policies and, and what he says, I mean, he says he's always, contradicting himself. But a lot of the time he, when people in Portland, when, when the loudest voices in the room are telling him to do something, he does it, you know, he, um, I mean, I certainly didn't see him calling for anybody to be arrested when his condo was set on fire. Right. Now that, that the idea of like small money donors having a lot of power, like generally speaking, that appeals to me in terms mm -hmm. of as a, as a balance against big business, corporate interests, running the politics of a place, whether that's a city, a state, or certainly a country. Um, I don't know. But it's I, 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 you know, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> no, and I agree. But I, that's just the answer to the question of like, who are the heavy hitters? Well, yeah. I mean, also interestingly, the teachers have tons of power, but they're not necessarily economically powerful people individually. It's the teachers union that's economically powerful that has a lot of power. Or for instance, um, you know, the, I, I would say the homeless industrial complex has a lot of power, all these nonprofits that we're funneling buckets of money into, but individually they probably don't. I mean, if you take any given one, they're probably not swimming in cash, but collectively, yes, it's, it's a loud voice. Well, that's what concerns me coming from, <clears throat> coming from a don't give a fuck, gonna govern my way, New York city coming to Portland. I feel like the loudest person in the room in the greasiest wheel usually does get their way and Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is my perspective that Kate Brown and Ted Wheeler just bend over backwards to whoever's shouting and screaming the loudest. And that's been our policy for the last three years, especially during COVID. Like you said, we saw the power of the teachers union to the chagrin of many parents over the last three years with the, the education in schools and masking and coronavirus. Wouldn't that be a sign of weakness in politics? Well, not anytime somebody, and I think it's a good argument. Anytime somebody argues, no, 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 Portland is driven by money and business or else Ted Wheeler would not have won. Sarah Iannarone, the Antifa candidate would have won. I, I think that's a good argument. I, I think 
but I think you've just countered that. You've just answered that, which is yes, he won, but in a lot of ways he's effectively Sarah Yanaron. He, Mm -hmm. he does bend to whatever the loudest voices in the room are. And he, and so does Kate Brown. And because Portland, I think because Oregon's a city state and and I, I, I completely understand. I'm not a Republican. I've never voted for a Republican in my life, but I, I completely understand why people who are self-identified as Republicans and live in the state of Oregon, certainly people far East of, of Portland and in Malheur County or, or Harney County or any of those less densely populated counties are really frustrated by the idea that they have absolutely no say in what happens in their state. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Generally speaking, politically and socially, I I wouldn't line up with them, but I I also have for a while now have a lot of empathy with people who are living in rural, especially Eastern Oregon, as you said, who are, who are just like, this isn't my state. I have no voice. any, Any state really now. I mean, yeah, well, California. that's what I was wondering, too, is like, you know, certainly California is driven by San Francisco, L.A., to a lesser extent, San Diego, which is a more conservative city. Um, but I feel like I'm trying to think of another state that would be like Portland. New York, it's Pennsylvania. Like one city. Oh, well, yeah, one city. There's, well, but the metro areas, the major, like you look at Pennsylvania, Philly and Pittsburgh, that's it. Right. But those are cities, those cities also within them probably have a little more political diversity. Yeah. Yeah, I'd you know, because yeah. even New York has more. In New York, you have you have the arts, but you have Wall Street. Right. You know, you, and I'm trying to think of a state that might be like Oregon, where it's one city that's very certainly identified with with being very blue. Colorado, maybe. But even Denver is yeah. like was more conservative, leaning e- eking into the blue somehow. Mm, yeah. So yeah. you're going to have some balance. Yeah. Um, Oregon's and, and, a great, is a great example. I'm sure it's not singular because we just can't think of it now, but uh, yeah. wherever that exists, yeah, it's, I can imagine the frustration. Right. No doubt. I mean, I, I don't know what the answer to that is, you know, like, I mean, seceding into Idaho, the people of Idaho don't want you. Oh. <laughs> you <know? laughs> um, they don't? I, I think that a lot of people in Idaho have had it with people kind of moving in. Just like uh, Oregonians <laughs> for frustrated with Californians. Well, it's we when we when we were talking about people migrating, I actually thought and and realizing like, oh, I don't like Austin or I don't like Portland. Right. It's you know same thing with this past two years, people migrating to places like Boise from San Francisco, mm-hmm. and being like, oh, I actually don't like being around people that don't think just like me, you know, or <laughs> that's a smaller place. Well, or, it's, or there, it's you know in in Idaho, that's it's an interesting. Um, question because I got a good buddy and uh, he loves Sun Valley. Who doesn't love Sun Valley? It's lots of fun. It's great. But he's like, we think about moving there. And again, you talk about flights. You talk about, uh, you don't have to get too far outside of Sun Valley be- yeah. before it's a whole different world. Right. A different I'm not saying world. good or bad. It's just but it's different. Just different. Yeah. yeah. So is there anything happening in terms of the homelessness? Let's focus on that as we're kind of a little over an hour and we'll, we'll start to land this We've plane. We've got more as, questions as, for, for you, Marty Kristen. Say. <laughs> but is there anything happening on the homeless front or any potential candidates that you've been exposed to that you like what you're hearing or you like what's being done? Or in general, if it's not the homeless front, it just in general in Portland and the things that you as a, uh, are concerned about. Have you been exposed to any ideas or people slash potential candidates that you're 
excited about. And, and you you're said hopeful. you're not. You said you're not running for any office. So who, who do you who do you think has good ideas? I know she's been approached to run and has and has declined. Yeah, I, I wish she would, but she's just adamant about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's. I mean, that's part of why I started the podcast. I I really appreciate everybody who's running who has good ideas, but when I talk to people seriously, like consultants and people who um, could have helped me take those steps, I was simultaneously reading night after night in the paper about how Dan Ryan's house was being vandalized seven times with impunity and how... Mayor Wheeler's condo was set up ablaze and they were throwing commercial munitions into it. Um, and I have little kids, so I just really have no desire to express my unpopular opinions with political office um, attached to them. You don't want to immerse yourself in that imbroglio. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard enough to do on a podcast in Portland. And I think it, it would be, I, I applaud everybody with good ideas who's interested in running for office. So some of them, so Vadim, who is part of this city charter commission trying to change Portland's form of government is running against Joanne Hardesty and he's great. And there's another great person running against her and his name is Renee Gonzalez. And he also has really great ideas. So she has two, I think really formidable opponents who are pulling ahead of her. And maybe that's a sign that political will is changing. I don't know. We'll see uh, in the ultimate election in for Multnomah County chair, Deborah Kofori is the current chair. She is terming out uh, Lori Stegman, I think is her name. She is a current commissioner running for Deborah Kofori's seat. And she is uh, a Asian woman, a diverse candidate and I know um, diversity is as it should be really important for for any candidates who are running for office. So I should I should circle back and say that Renee is Hispanic and his family's Hispanic and Vadim is Ukrainian and uh, that Lori is who's running for Multnomah County chair is Asian. And then there's another woman who's very interesting, who's running for Multnomah County chair. Also, uh, her name is Shariah Mayfield, and she is Brandon Mayfield's daughter. She's a lawyer. Brandon Mayfield is also a lawyer, and he won a case against the feds who accused him of being engaged in the Madrid bombing and surveilled him and tossed his house under the Patriot Act. And actually, he and Hmm. Shariah wrote a really interesting book about their family's ordeal, her mother, Shariah's mother is Egyptian and their family is Muslim and they were, it's, it's their allegation that they were unfairly targeted because of, of their religion and because of his fam, his wife's ethnicity, his children's ethnicity and his ties to the Muslim community. And she is running, she is also running for Multnomah County chair and she believes that we should engage the current So we currently do have laws in place that allow us to put guardianships in place over incapacitated people. And she believes that we should begin using those laws to get her priority is to get the most dangerous people out of tents and off the streets and into some kind of form of what what, triaged, whatever rehabilitation they may need, get them triaged and get get them 
really just out of the out of their their own harm's way and just sort of out of the way of the public. And so and she's very adamant about that. Um, She's very clear about that. So I think I think we'll see. I don't know if these people will be elected or not, but there are certainly people that are voicing different ideas and they're there are some really loud voices calling bizarrely calling people like Renee and Shariah white supremacists who are denouncing them altogether. But I mean, they're, they're not neither white nor I don't think supremacists, but they're, they certainly have ideas that are unpopular with some very loud voices. So regardless of what polling says, It'll be interesting. I'm I'm really just interested in seeing what happens in the ultimate election, because as we know, after the wake of Donald Trump polls, I mean, I, I will no longer ever trust a poll. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah, same here. <laughs> Two cycles of Donald Trump in the polls. Right. Well, I, anytime I hear the poll poll results, I think, you know, people who still have a landline who are willing to answer their phone at dinner times right. say. <laughs> I thought you thought of strip clubs and you heard poll results. <laughs> Jeez. Just, oh, I'm sorry. That was another conversation. Sorry. With you, AJ. Well, um, Kristen. Thanks. Uh, thanks for coming in and chatting. I mean, you know, th- these oh, issues are you. so complex. Um, are you landing we're, the plane? We're, we're not going to solve. I, I want Britt to land the plane. Britt's going to land the plane. Give her the I'm, wheel. I'm, I'm just putting the flaps down. Okay. Um, okay. Flaps uh, down. We're not going to solve anything, right, on, on an hour-long podcast. But it's, again, just like I think you believe, uh, just having these conversations are is valuable and and you're so much more knowledgeable than I am on these issues, especially when it comes to uh, to do with Portland. Um, a lot of people may not realize it, but like Britt and I live in a suburb of Portland that, despite being eight or nine miles away from downtown Portland. It's a completely different county and, and, you know, different system of government. Even when I was was driving here, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so nice. It's it's like stepping into a different country. So all these, all these things that you're talking about in having, you know, what you're dealing with in Portland um, and what you're dealing with in Multnomah County, they don't apply to us as residents. You mean you don't have shopping carts in your front yard on recycling day? Only the, only when Marty comes over. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And a sleeping bag. And, but, but they still matter to us, you know, because we want, we want what's best for the city. We, you know, we, we didn't just move to someplace that's in the middle of nowhere. We moved somewhere that's attached to a city and a city that was on the upswing and, and vibrant. And there's some cool things happening here. Um, so, you know, it does very much matter to us what's, what's going on in Portland. And, and as much as we can be a part of that conversation, I know that, that we, believe that it's our duty to be. Um, so anyways, that's my long winded way of saying there's a reason we wanted you here. There's a reason it matters to us. And thanks for sharing your knowledge, your personal story, um, and keep up the good work with the podcast. Oh, well, thanks. I I'm a big fan of, of you all. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And if you want to publish this as, you know, an episode on, on your show as well, I'll, I'll, I'll send you the file so you can do that. Oh, that'd be great. Thanks so much. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much, Kristen. It was great to meet you and yeah. great to hear your, your thoughts and ideas on this stuff. Britt? Yeah. Thank you so much, Kristen. Uh, there's two things that we can do. And I see the majority of people doing option number one, which is sit on our butts in our living rooms and bitch and complain about Portland. But I think the option two is the better one, which is to continue to be involved. And how do we do that? We vote. 
We go to the local homeless shelter. The one closest to us, AJ, is Father's Heart. I was there I've last there. month. Yeah. Um, get downtown. You can do what I did. Two days ago, a friend texted me and said, hey, uh, can you help me out and be an extra in a black and white 50s noir comedy um, kink scene? Filming in Northeast Portland. Sure, of course. You jumping Again. right on that Again, one. Britt? Again, Britt? <laughs> Again? After your stripper scene, that Korean <laughs> movie? <laughs> and I said, yes. Yes, I can. So get downtown and get involved and remind yourself that Portland is weird and fantastic. Yep. Amen. 